Uh, I really am grateful, though, um, Mrs. Brown, for the opportunity to be here uh, with these, these sweet ladies of our church, uh, sages, everyone. And I know uh, the Lord's working in your lives as you've devoted yourself to the study of the Gospel of John. Uh, what a magnificent project that you've been on. Uh, I've seen my wife's homework in years past, so I know you're not messing around. So I was under pressure as I was getting this ready, just thinking, I mean, most of these ladies know a lot more about the Gospel of John. Uh, I mean, I've forgotten a lot, but so I know that I'm, I'm ready to talk to, to you all, Johannine scholars. Uh, and then my assignment, which is John 17, is just a masterpiece of a chapter. And so I'm very eager to, to get into John 17 with you. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge assignment. It's overwhelming. I feel like I should take off my shoes because it's you know, one of those passages that's, that's holy ground. Uh, J.C. Ryle, one of my, my heroes, uh, the Bishop Ryle, he said that John 17 is the most important chapter in the Bible. Well, not just in the book of John, in the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther said about John 17, this is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, talking about the Lord, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It's so deep, so rich, so wide. No one can fathom it. The great Scottish reformer John Knox When he was on his deathbed, he had a prolonged illness that was leading to his death, and he knew he was going to meet his maker and stand before the Lord, and he requested that John 17 would be read to him repeatedly uh, as he was languishing. Why is this chapter so significant, so impactful, so rich? Well, I want to start there, and and then we'll We'll pray and we'll get into the text, but I just want to start with some, uh, I think they call it prolegomena in the big leagues. It's, it's just, uh, why, why does this chapter matter so much? Uh, four reasons I think I have. Number one, it's profoundly Trinitarian, profoundly Trinitarian. What you're seeing in John 17 is a conversation within the Godhead. I mean, that, that in and of itself is, is powerful, it's inter-Trinitarian communication. You have the divine being who has existed in manifold perfection for all eternity as no beginning and no end, who is one God and three persons who has some sort of relational abilities within, it, within himself to relate to each other, to commune with each other. And Edwards said, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, said that it was, it was the perfection of the Godhead in their relationship to one another that was the reason for the creation of everything else. So in other words, he used an illustration to explain it. He said, it's no fault of a fountain that it's prone to overflow thinking about the Godhead as that inexhaustibly rich fountain of perfect triune relationships. So this is not, this is, this is not you know, the kiddie pool, uh, John 17. This is, this is big stuff. This is Trinitarian. 
Uh, we know this is a prayer because Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven in verse 1. Uh, but this is not the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer, we usually call the Lord's Prayer, Lord, teach us to pray, and, and, and Jesus says, our Father who art in heaven, we usually call that the Lord's Prayer. Probably better to call that the disciples' prayer because he's showing the disciples how to pray. This is the real Lord's Prayer. This gives us a glimpse of the private prayer life of our Lord repeatedly alluded to in the gospel, right? He, he sneaks off to go pray. Uh, he, he spends hours in, in communion with his Father, well, here it's opened up and put on display, an example of, of his communion with his father. This is also, you know, one of the big messages of, of John's gospel, as you've been studying, is the deity of Christ. This is probably, John 17, the clearest and most cumulative example of the deity of Jesus. The message of John has been throughout that Jesus is God. That John declares that Jesus Christ is the eternal word who made all things, who is with God and who is God, right? John 1, 1 through 18. Not one thing came into existence apart from this divine word. And the word who is in the beginning is with God, directed towards God and is God. This entails his preexistence. He is the only begotten God, John 1, 18. And so this is truly profoundly Trinitarian. This is the, the very depths of of the, of the Godhead himself. And so we we're, we're really are treading on, on holy ground, and this is way above all our pay grades. There isn't a theologian who could exhaust all that John 17 contains. Uh, second reason this is so significant of a chapter is that it's priestly. Not only is it profoundly Trinitarian, it's priestly. Uh, you've heard it called the high priestly prayer, uh, in my Bible, it's got that little title above the chapter, the High Priestly Prayer. As far as I could search it out, uh, the, the title, Jesus' High Priestly Prayer, has circulated since the theologian David Kreithaus uh, in 1531 to 1600 is when he lived. So we're looking at you know, something that's been identified with Jesus' high priestly ministry since the 16th century at least uh, and, and called that High Priestly Prayer. Now, that's not just a title for the, the chapter or a heading title. Uh, this is answering one of the most important questions you could ask, which is, what is Jesus doing? And it's a great question to ask your kids. Maybe your kids have asked you that question. I, mean, I get that Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the grave. We're about to celebrate and commemorate all that in the Easter season. But what's he doing now? What's he up to? A little girl asked me that, the one making a funny face in the picture once, and I just, I don't know if I'd, I'd put it that way before because it was just such a simple question. What, where, what's he doing now? And, and I rattled off a few things. Uh, he, he is sitting at the right hand of God. He's preparing a place for you. Uh, but most importantly, Ollie Joe, he's, he's praying for you. I mean, that, that's the that's the priestly work of Jesus. So the answer to what's Jesus doing now, we get a glimpse of that ministry before he ascends to heaven in John 17, the ongoing work of Jesus in our lives, what, where he is now and what he's doing between his ascension to the Father and his return in glory is he is representing the needs of his people to their Father. This is connected to the priesthood of all believers, but most importantly, this is... This is connected to the, 
the ultimate expression of the priesthood in the Old Testament, in our experience, is Jesus as the high priest. That's why Hebrews 7 says, you know, he was tempted in all ways as we are, but 725, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Or as Paul said to Timothy, there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so this chapter gives us a glimpse of the ongoing ministry of Jesus right now in heaven. So not only is it profoundly Trinitarian and priestly, it's also personal, and I mean that in the most personal possible way. Jesus is actively praying for us, for you and for me. He intercedes at his Father's right hand for his people individually. And I think one of the things that we'll draw out in John 17 is we just draw some, some gold that comes to the surface here, not able to exhaust it all, but Jesus is clearly burdened by, the, the, the main burden of Jesus in this prayer is the needs of his own people. The bulk of this prayer is about that. The substance of the prayer is about that. Jesus intended his disciples to overhear this prayer. That happened in John 11, you remember, when Jesus was praying about the death of Lazarus and, and asking God right before he resurrected Lazarus and called him forth from the grave. Remember, he said in John 11, verse 41, he said, thank you, Father, that you always hear me. And then you remember what he said? I, I say this for the benefit of those standing here. So sometimes Jesus' prayers were, were deeply private and personal. Other times he was well aware of his audience. And this is one of those, those cases. Uh, John 17, 13, he says the, the same thing. You know, he, he says, but now I come to you, talking to his father, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. He, he wants you to hear this because the prayer is personal. It's directed towards individual believers in this chapter, you are mentioned as a, a disciple of Jesus, a disciple of the disciples. You are prayed for personally, and you will be prayed for as a disciple in perpetuity until his return. This chapter demonstrates something beautifully profound. You, dear lady of every woman's grace, you are on the very heart of the Son of God. And that's, that's what we're getting into here. Finally, as far as leading up to this thing and why it's such a big chapter and why your homework was so hard uh, is, is the word purposeful, purposeful. Uh, you've been studying a lot about the literary shape of the, the Gospel of John, his, his argument, his development. It's so different than the synoptic Gospels that are, are concerned about sequence to a certain degree, but John is, is less concerned about that and more concerned about the theology, the Christology of, of the gospel story. And so you've been following that, and there's a purposeful construction with this chapter. Uh, the prayer of Jesus occurs right here, uh, not just chronologically, but theologically, intentionally. Jesus' longest recorded prayer fulfills this arc of John's gospel. One scholar named Minier said, the decisive turning point between ministry and passion views this hour of Jesus's glorification both proleptically in anticipation and retrospectively in review. 
So there's so much going on here that John is bringing out the theology of this prayer at the perfect time between Jesus's righteous life, his miraculous deeds, his earthly ministry, and his passion week, his crucifixion, his suffering, his burial, and his resurrection. So it's, it's such an important spot. How do we approach it? Well, let's look at it in the three kind of obvious divisions. Verses 1 through 26 is the whole thing. But in his final prayer, Jesus gives this account of his mission, uh, kind of a mission-accomplished prayer to his Father. And he prays first for himself in verses 1 through 5, then for his disciples, verses 6 through 19, and finally for all the believers who will follow him in years to come in verses 20 to 26. So first for himself, verses 1 through 5, then for his disciples, verses 6 through 19, and finally for all latter believers, verses 20 to 26. So we have a feast before us and a few minutes to to draw some, some real insight out of this. So let me, let me pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll dive into this text. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, for the heart of God on display in this chapter. Will you work through your word and by your spirit in the hearts and minds of all who are in attendance tonight? Help them to see uh, what Jesus is doing here and to draw rich application from it so that we might live in a way that would bring honor to our Lord who died for us and who prayed for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, number one, Jesus prays for himself, verses one through five. Diving right in, look at verse one. Jesus spoke these things. Uh, That's talking about the upper room discourse that you just finished studying, chapter 14 through 16, that links together to why Jesus is saying what he's saying. He has, for one of the final times, spoken of his death, foretelling his death and resurrection in chapter 16, the section just prior to this, and talked about his father's love and as it relates to the the care that Jesus has and his home going to the father. So when it says Jesus spoke these things, that links to everything before. And verse one, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, a common posture of prayer for the Lord, for any Jewish Uh, supplicant, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you, verse two, have gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Two predominant thoughts come out of this opening section. And again, you could never exhaust all that is within this beautiful prayer, but to try to give you something to hang on to, what are kind of two key things that Jesus is is praying about? And I think the first is the significance of the hour having come in verse one. And the second is the emphasis on the shared or reciprocal glory of God that seemed to consume 
the beginning of Jesus's prayer. He's concerned about the timing and he's concerned about glory. So let me stitch those together for you the best I can. Jesus is absorbed with the glory of God and is committed to bringing forth and giving and showing the glory of God no matter what it will cost him because the hour, his long promised hour is at hand. Jesus' concern for the ultimate aim of his life and ministry, of his impending death, is to bring God's glory and any glory that Jesus requests, which he does request in uh, verse uh, 1, glorify your son, will be glory that Jesus will give to the Father and that they will share in, verse 5, glorify me together with yourself. So first of all, this hour issue. Uh, Jesus, before he expresses the, the, the bulk of this prayer, which is the burden for his disciples, he talks about this Trinitarian desire for glory and the mission that he's been sent on by his Father and the hour that's been anticipated throughout John's gospel. Jesus, at this point, is literally hours away from agony and suffering and death. Having preached his last sermon in the Upper Room Discourse in chapter 14 through 16, he says this, the hour has come. That concept of the hour is something that John introduced us to all the way back in chapter 2, verse 4. And onward, it's been called the hour or the time, and it's been a theme you've been chasing in your study of John. You understand that when Jesus speaks of the hour has arrived, he does not mean 60 minutes. He means uh, the period that was expected. This is the, the time that was anticipated. It's like when Winston Churchill said, this is Britain's finest hour. It wasn't a 60-minute a period, but it was a time of resistance and war and battle and courage. And Jesus's hour before this point, uh, before chapter 12, had not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 30, they tried to seize him. And the reason they couldn't, according to John, is that his hour hadn't come. In chapter 8, verse 20, he's in the temple. They tried to capture him in the temple and trap him. And John says it was a fruitless venture because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 13, uh, now that you get into the approaching the very precipice of his suffering in the gospel of John and, and the the teaching section begins around 13. That's when you first hear that the time had come, the hour to leave this world and, and go to the Father, right? That's what he says in John 13, 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus' hour has arrived, his appointed time, his ministry and his mission have been fulfilled. And in the context of this entire gospel, Jesus' return to glory here includes his exaltation. But this hour of glory has a clear focus, not on a kingly rise like his disciples had so long anticipated, but instead can only be seen by way of Jesus' impending cross. If he is to leave and go to his father, he's to fulfill his earthly mission. And the gospel of John makes it clear that the mission has as its 
highest point and fullest expression and final aim, the suffering, death, and crucifixion of the Son of God. And so when we talk about the hour coming and we talk about Jesus' desire to be glorified and to share glory with God, the only way to understand that in this study, in this context, is to know that to glorify the Son so that the Son can glorify the Father is to fulfill the ultimate purpose of Jesus' prayer and Jesus' mission, the ultimate concern of Jesus' coming to glorify the Father is that ultimate aim, the intermediate aim is to glorify the Son and Jesus is willing to do that at any cost. And Jesus has already prayed this with his disciples when he said, "Uh, Father, you're... When he taught them to pray, your will be done, your kingdom come. And he's anticipating this exaltation at the Father's right hand. And as you trace this development of the hour and you trace this concept of glory, you would end up in a place like John 12, verse 20, that says, now there was some Greeks among who were going up to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, and began to ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, an audience with Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what is it? What is Jesus's hour of glory? What is his kingly exaltation? What is the glory that will come upon Jesus and will be shared and given in a reciprocal way within the Trinity to the Father. If it's not the transfiguration, which was a high point of Shekinah glory, if it's not Jesus's baptism, which was the glory of God appearing in that moment of Jesus's inauguration of his ministry, if it's not the healings and the power he demonstrated over demons, what is this hour of glory that has finally arrived Jesus says in John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Jesus's glory is only to be understood through Jesus's death. The cross, the impending suffering, has in it the very glory of Jesus Christ. He must lose his life. He must die. He must go like a wheat grain into the ground. This is why in Gethsemane you see the other side of this tension. He says, for this reason I came. Father, glorify your name. I mean, in one hand in his humanity asking, is there any other way? But with this full submission and obedience in his humanity saying, for this reason I came. Father, glorify your name. The glory of Jesus is always bound with his death. His death brings forth his glory. He experiences the anguish of death. And that's why he says, am I to say, Father, save me from this hour? Glorify your name. But how? How is the Father glorified in the cross of Jesus? If the cross is a display of God's glory in Christ, why is the cross the best display? Well, I think the answer is in what glory is. If glory is weight or sum, 
or standing. Those are three good words to kind of take the Hebraic concept to bring it to us today. Your your standing in the community was your glory. Your significance was your glory. Kavod is the Hebrew word for weight or substance or sum. Well, the weight and substance and sum of God who is spirit, who doesn't come in in kilograms or pounds, but he comes in all that he is in himself, his attributes, his goodness, his love, his devotion, the obedience of Christ. All that God is in Christ is on display in its most fullest sense at the cross of Jesus. Spurgeon says it this way, Now, beloved, God is glorified in the death of Christ by the love of all whom Jesus saves, by the sacred awe and filial fear of all whom Jesus brings to the Father's feet, by the ardent, patient devotion of all who are consecrated in the heart and feel the sacred flame of love to Christ setting their souls on a blaze up there in heaven where the white robe never ceased to sing and here below where martyrs were burned for love of God, where confessors defied all adversaries to spread abroad the glory of his name, where humble Christians suffer in patience or labor on with diligence or walk in holiness. The Father's name is glorified through the passion of the Christ of God. So Spurgeon is saying the effects of the cross, the the gathering of the elect, the salvation of the lost, the spreading of God's name among the nations, that's why it's glorious. But even before the effects of it is the reality of it. In other words, the cross is glorious because it is the outshining of the whole of God's character. His goodness is on display at the cross. His mercy is on display at the cross. His justice, his perfect justice, you see it at the cross. His righteousness, his holiness, his truth, his beauty, every facet of God's character, All of it breaks forth in this glorious manifestation of the Shekinah glory of God at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus requests glory in John 17, 5, repeating the thought of 17, 1, he adds that notion of this is the same glory that Jesus has experienced in eternity past. You see, the cross didn't give God more glory. He's perfect. He has all glory. You can't add to God's glory, but it can be widely displayed. And that's what happens on the cross. The takeaway from these first five verses, I think, needs to be an awareness that Jesus is consumed, even in his darkest hour, with the glory of God above all else. And if the cross is the place where God shows himself glorious, are we also committed to the same? Are our prayers consumed with showing forth the glory of God? And if we're aware that the best place to see and assess and value the glory of God is the cross of Jesus, is that what occupies our thoughts? That central gospel message of Jesus died for sinners, the just for the unjust, should be what occupies the hearts of all believers who want to bring Christ glory and honor, glory and honor that he shares with the Father for all eternity before time began and for all eternity 
as we enjoy God in heaven forever. So that's point one, Jesus prays for himself. It's about his hour and it's about his glory. Second point, verses nine through, verses eight through 17. I don't remember what I told you, 16, you got it. I'm, I'm, I'm editing as we go here, ladies. Thanks for hanging with me. We're, we're in the depths here. I almost took one of my shoes off. I mean, it's, it's the serious stuff. Okay, so what are we saying here? Number, number two, Christ prays for his disciples. Now, this is mainly Christ play, praying for his earthly followers who are there present listening to him. The group of 12 and those beyond the 12 who were his, uh, his followers, his disciples. His, uh, he was their teacher and they were his students. Christ has a special work he has done for and in these believers And his emphasis in these verses, as we'll see, is that he is not taking them with him. That he's leaving, but he's leaving them here. And this is where we begin to see the bulk of this prayer is Jesus is deeply concerned, burdened by the needs of his own people. And he provides the grounds for this prayer starting in in, uh, verse... I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why I'm struggling. Uh, In verse six, I have manifest your name to the men whom you gave me. And please note this word gave. Greek word is didomai. It's it's repeated a dozen times at least uh, in John 17. The idea of giving and receiving, giving, giving, giving. Just note that as you study it. I've manifest your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I've been glorified in them. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, in their hearing, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The grounds for Jesus' prayer, the prayer that he prays for his disciples, has three reasons for this prayer, Uh, three reasons uh, that, that he prays just for his disciples and not for all humans everywhere. He's praying for his disciples, three reasons at least. One, he says, they belong to the Father. He repeatedly asserts, they are yours and you gave them to me. So Jesus is predominantly concerned with his disciples because number one, they belong to the Father. 
They are the possession of God the Father. Number two, they bring him glory. It's that reciprocal glory that is shared between father and son. Number three, because he is about to leave them, verses six through 11. And so Jesus is asking the father to accomplish two things primarily in the middle section of this prayer. That God, because they are his disciples and not just Jesus' disciples, but they're given as a gift to Christ from the Father because they are giving God particular glory in their calling and in their following. And because Jesus is about to leave them physically, Jesus asks the Father to do two things. Number one, protect his disciples. And number two, sanctify his people. Protect his disciples, that's verses 11 through 16, and then sanctify his people, that's 17 through 19. Now this prayer is arranged chronologically because after Jesus prays for himself in verses one through five, he then moves to pray for his immediate disciples. And as he prays for his current disciples, primarily verses six through 19 or so, and then moves to pray for his future disciples, uh, verse 20 through 24, and there's some overlap there, obviously. The first prayer is a prayer about protection, a prayer about a concern that they're in an evil world. It's a dangerous place, and they're not gonna have Jesus with them anymore. He's concerned that they'll be separate from the world, but aware that they'll be in the world. And that next prayer that Jesus prays for the believers that will follow these believers, that's us, is that we would be unified with one another so that the world, which hasn't been the object of his concern until the very end of his prayer, is able to see Jesus through us. So that's just kind of trying to catch you to the big picture of what's going on here. Those you have given me, Jesus said repeatedly, right? There's an emphasis here in the unity between the Father and Son. Everything Jesus says and does from Uh, the beginning of his ministry has been in perfect accord and perfect obedience with his father. I mean, how many times did he say, it's yours, you gave them, it's yours, they're yours. The words that I gave them, they were your words. There's a unity on display between the father and the son, a a, a parallel plan that's, that's not two plans, but one, Jesus in his earthly mission in humanity, fully obeying the word of his father. And I think what we see in the heart of Jesus here as he's concerned and burdened that his disciples are taken care of when he's gone, that they are protected and guarded and secure, and that that they are made holy and and unified in, in days to come, it just draws to the surface, I think, one of the most beautiful and important lessons that I hope you'll take from John 17. And it's this, it's that Jesus' disciples are precious. They're precious. The 12, they were precious to him. And every disciple who follows is so precious to Jesus. Three reasons for that. And we've covered some of this, but the Lord, the, the Lord's people. I mean, I don't know how else to say that. It's just simply, they belong to the Father. If you've ever wondered about your worth, your value, you know, there's, we have a big emphasis. It's, it's theologically correct. It's biblical that we are big, yucky sinners, right? I mean, we are, we are worms indeed. 
But you got to keep your worm theology in check here because you have to also remember if you're a disciple of Jesus, what God does not see you as a worm, but he sees you as his precious possession, a gift that he has chosen and given to his son. Verse 2 said that. Verse 6 says that. You gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They've kept your word. Verse 9 says that. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those you have given me, for they are yours. Do you realize that you belong to God and he has given you as a gift to Jesus? And Jesus watched over his disciples and then gave them right back to God in this this perfect shared communion within the Godhead, a people. That's why Peter would say in 1 Peter, you are a people belonging to God. How wonderful is that? How rich is, is our possession, our being possessed by God, that God chose a people, <clears throat> conformed them to the image of his son to make them his brothers and sisters for all eternity. That's one image, right? The other image is this is a bridegroom, Ephesians 5. God chooses and selects a bride to gift to his son. I mean, there's a preciousness here. Uh, whenever you have something, a possession that is, is valuable to you, it's usually because of where you got it from, right? Unless you're just super greedy and you got like a, a big diamond that you... I don't know, dug out of the ground. Weird. But the things that are most precious to, to us are usually sentimental things, right? I asked my wife, the house burns down, what are you going to take? She's just going to take the kids. I'm like, okay, the, the kids, they got out. They're faster than us anyway. <laughs> what, what else are you going to take? And it's sentimental things, right? It's our wedding ring or, or maybe a, a photograph we don't have a digital version of. It's, it's that sort of thing. And the things that are precious to us are precious because of, of who they're attached to, where they came from. I have this little badger shaving brush thing my wife gave me when we were young, and I used to shave my head. Uh, I don't use it anymore, but it's still precious to me because now I'm, I'm bearded and, and glorious. So, um, But I used to shave my head, and I used this little badger brush, and it was special wood from Africa. And, and it was special not because it was wood from Africa, but it was from my wife. And it was kind of her, and, and it reminds me of her. And so disciples belong to Jesus because they're a grace gift from God. And Jesus' concern, and even his talking about his authority, which also comes from God, is that it's specifically given so that he can give eternal life to those who are given by the Father. And so we know things like all the Father brings to him will come to him, and the bride is, is selected for the, for the son to be his possession and, and to be a source of joy for him. I mean, this is your testimony in a cosmic sense. You know, how did you become a Christian? You could say, well, I, I came to every woman's grace, somebody invited me, I heard the gospel, and, and I, I became a follower of Jesus. Uh, my 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 grandma led me in a prayer, and, and I, I trusted the Lord that day. Whatever your testimony is, all Christians have the same testimony in this cosmic sense. We were given to Jesus by God. That's awesome. You belong to Christ for all eternity. That says something about your security, doesn't it? To know that you're possessed by Jesus as an irrevocable bride gift to the Son. 
when I do weddings. I'm the college pastor, so I do a lot of weddings, like Vegas. And I love doing weddings. I got a, I got a great seat. I've perfected something called the Duncan Slide, so that I don't like to be in the kissing picture. I don't like to be that close to people kissing. I'm just I'm a modest New Mexican Norwegian. So I, I don't like the pictures. I've seen too many pictures where the, the couple, you may kiss the bride, and the, the pastor's like, kind of awkward in that moment. So I perfected something called the Duncan Slide. You may, I always say, you may kiss your wife, and I just, with my long legs, I just go like that. And then it's just them in the picture, and I'm out, and I just smile over here, kind of, you know, blushy. So the beginning of the wedding, though, is the tricky part. I, I use the church, uh, kind of vows built off Church of England vows, old, ancient English vows. And there's a question when it starts out, right? Dad walks her down, and some of you are starting to cry at this moment because of stage of life issues. Uh, I'm, I'm about to join you in there. And, uh, and you, he walks her down and, and you say, who brings this woman to be married to this man? And that little line is a reminder of the, the gifting of the bride. And in an ultimate sense, that's what God is doing with his disciples and giving them to Christ as a glorious possession. So that's the number one reason that I, I see here that Jesus' disciples are precious. Another reason is is that we are instruments to bring glory to the Son. All that I have is yours. All that you have is mine. Glorify yourself through them. I mean, to know that we are being used of God to further the glory of God, to announce the glory of God, to spread the glory of God across this world, that our lives are intended to bring God glory because we we honor Christ who died for us. And so that's one of the reasons we're precious. A third reason that disciples are precious is the stewardship reflected in these passages. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I mean, Jesus is so concerned about them. Stewardship of them, their remaining in the world, their protection. He says, I protected them. Now, Father, you need to protect them. Verse 11, verse 12, same thing. When I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition so that scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus is deeply concerned for their protection, for the security of his disciples in a very hostile environment. He's already said in John 15, isn't it? Uh, that they'll be persecuted. Yeah, if the world hates you, John 15, 18, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world because this world hates you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Jesus is concerned for their protection. And so he puts over them a greater protection in giving them his spirit and in entrusting to them to the Father than even Jesus' presence was when he walked with them in his earthly life and mission. You know that near all the disciples were martyred, right? So what kind of protection is Jesus guaranteeing through God? Well, it must be a kind of protection that overarches this earthly life that doesn't preclude us from death, even a painful death, or from suffering or sorrow or separation from our own lives. 
but instead it's a kind of protection, a kind of keeping wherein we are eternally secure in Jesus. What an awesome promise. It shows how precious we are to God. Though beleaguered and discouraged and threatened, even killed, the Father is able to keep you, save you, protect you, and help you. Well, finally, Jesus prays for all believers, verses 20 to 26. And here we see the security, the concern for security move to a concern for unity and holiness. Remember, holiness is in verse 17. Jesus sees that these guys are not perfect yet. You've read about the disciples in the Gospel of John, right? Not quite arrived uh, like the rest of us. And in verse 17, we understand that, that they will be fully and thoroughly and finally and eventually sanctified, made holy. They're set apart by Jesus's atoning death, but they will be improved upon through the word of truth. It's one of the important reasons we love to sit under preaching of God's word because we know it washes us and cleanses us and sanctifies us. But as he speaks of their security and their unity, he moves towards thinking about the holiness and the, I'm sorry, the, the security and their holiness. He moves towards thinking about the unity of all those who will believe through the testimony of Jesus's disciples. And this is where it's, it's kind of the ultimate accumulation of this prayer, starting in verse, we'll start in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, and here's where you come in, dear friend, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's a description of you, 2023 Christian. You are one who believes in Jesus through the word of the apostles. There is a direct line that connects these disciples and their faithful, sacrificial preaching, when they met their neck to a sword and they entrusted this to faithful men who entrusted to faithful men who raised their families in the fear and admonition of the Lord, who endured centuries of being hounded and persecuted and then relative period of peace and stability and then hounding and persecution all the way through 2,000 years of church history, your a believer because of the testimony of those who believed you believe in Jesus through their word, a connection to this ancient faith, the same faith you have today. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is a prayer for accomplished unity that Jesus guarantees his people will have that is linked to Trinitarian unity as united as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are, so are all Christians who follow Jesus in all times, no matter what denomination, no matter what kind of preferences, no matter what kind of nation they're from or language they speak, if you are a follower of Jesus who believes on the Lord by faith in the Son of God who died for you, then you belong to all other Christians as tight as the Trinity uh, relates to one another. That's the unity that Jesus prays for and is accomplished by the Spirit of God. Verse 22 the glory in which you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. Again, perfect unity. 
I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. His final words, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Jesus prays for all the believers who would believe like those first believers did. Jesus prays that all believers would be one, verses 20 to 23, and would eventually be perfected to see and enter into his glory and be reunited with their Lord. And I am so concerned that you would see verse 25's emphasis here. So, Uh, Just to touch on unity, Christ's prayer for his people's unity is accomplished by Jesus, by his atonement. It's something that we're to strive for. We strive for unity and peace in in our churches. This isn't about, you know, the 30,000 denominations. That's an exaggeration. Uh, That that doesn't disprove Jesus's prayer. There is a, a higher spiritual unity that is an undeniable reality for all those who belong to Jesus. That's what Jesus is emphasizing. We work that unity out in our local churches as we don't poke each other in the eye and we try to love each other the best we can in Jesus. So that's what I want to say about unity. But what I want you to see in verses 25 especially is Jesus' burden, distressed, concerned that the world does not know God. See what he says in verse 25? Oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you. I mean, the world has been just the object of kind of danger for the disciples. And he says they need to be in the world, but not of the world. They're, they're going to be, there's no way to get them out because Jesus is leaving. They have to stay. They're going to have to represent him in this world, which has been presented so far in John 17 as a hostile place. But here we see this world is also a mission field. It is the object of the son's distress that the world does not know their father, their creator, and their God. He says, O righteous father, the world does not know you. Thomas Manton says, this is the most awesome cry that ever escaped our Savior's lips. So what's the solution? Jesus says, but I know you, and they know, the disciples, that you have sent me. You see, Christ's prayer for his people, a prayer for their sanctification, a prayer for their unity, and then a prayer for their glorification. In this, Jesus is saying that the key to this world, knowing the Father, is that the world would come to know Jesus through those who Jesus knows and loves and has been given to the Father. You see, all the number of the elect will be drawn in. All of them will be brought to Jesus, not just through the instrumentality of God's sovereign grace, but through the mediatorial work that we do in missions and evangelism and child rearing and neighbor loving and displaying the love of Jesus to a world that doesn't know it. Not a ton of people in 2023 are reading their Bible in the world, but you're there 
and you know Jesus, and it's your responsibility to continue to make him known. And so Jesus says, the love you have for me, that I myself may be in them, is a reminder that the only way they come to know Jesus is through us. And that's where he leaves his prayer. Jesus' prayer for his disciples begins with that reciprocal glory and the fulfillment of his hour. It reminds us that we belong to Jesus and to the Father in perfect security, that he'll guard his own in this world. And though we're to be separate from this world, we are not to leave this world. We have to be in it. No communes, homesteaders, sorry. The separation from the world is, is one of holiness and devotion to Christ. The exception is that apostate in verse 12. All of this comes in the context, not of of mournful sorrow as we wait for the Lord's return, but in verse 13, a full joy that we experience because we belong to Jesus. God perseveres all believers from the evil one. We will not fail to be with Christ as we follow him. He will unify all his disciples, those then and now and those to come. And it is our great purpose to make the love of God known through Jesus All of this because we belong to the Father. And that's that's what has to be the overarching, heart-stirring message of John 17, isn't it? To know that you belong to God the Father through Christ. I mean, that needs to stir your affections. That needs to be the, the hope of your heart. I'll let Spurgeon preach the end of this thing. He says, we might have half thought that Jesus would have said, they are mine and therefore I pray for them. It would have been true, but there would have not been the beauty of truth about which we have it. He loves us all the better and he prays for us all the more fervently because we are the fathers. Such is his love to his father that our being the father sheds upon us an extra halo of beauty because we belong to the father. Therefore, does the savior plead for us with all the greater earnestness at the throne of the heavenly grace. And then he really hits the gas here. Have you not any notion of how much God loves you? Let Spurgeon ask you that question. Have you not any notion of how much God loves you? Dear brother, dear sister, you have never yet had half an idea or the tithe of an idea of how precious you are to Christ. You think because you're so imperfect and you fall so much below your own ideal that therefore he does not love you much. You think that he cannot do so. Have you ever measured the depth of Christ's agony in Gethsemane and of his death on Calvary? If you've tried to do so, you'll be quite sure that apart from anything in you or about you, he loves you with a love that passes knowledge. Believe it. But I do not love him as I should, I think I hear you say. No. And you never will unless you first know his love to you. Believe it. Believe it to the highest degree that he so loves you that when there is no one who can commune with him but the Father, even in their conversation, is about their mutual estimate of you, how much they love you. And Jesus says, all mine are thine and thine are mine. Ladies, you are beloved to God the Father who gave his son for you 
and his son gave you back to the father and the father gives you back to Christ and holds you securely for all eternity. The least we can do is show this world the love that Jesus showed to us. Father, thank you for these dear ladies and our church. We're grateful to sit under the teaching of your word and to be influenced by your truth. Sanctify us by your truth, we pray. Help us to, uh, a passage like this, to plumb the depths of it for the rest of our lives, to just marvel at the, the love of God on display in Christ. As these ladies go to their, their groups and work on their homework through John, I pray that you would, you would bless their studies and be with them as you unite their hearts together in unity and love and, and commitment to you and to one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.